The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Welcome everyone, and welcome Ajahn Chandako. Nice to have you back. This is Ajahn Chandako's, I believe, fourth visit to the center, and I feel like we're very fortunate to have somebody who's actually from Minneapolis originally, um, but who did something that not too many people do, which is uh, become part of an ancient tradition in Thailand, in this case, and uh, participated in a, a style of practice that is really modeled after the way the monks and nuns practiced at the time of the Buddha. It's called the Thai Force Tradition, and it's a, a lineage or a, a school of Buddhism in Thailand and uh, practiced uh, at Ajahn Chah's monastery, Vakpananda Chah, that was set up for Westerners practicing in this traditional way back in 1990. So for 18 years now, uh, Ajahn Chah, of course, practiced as a monk and had done some practice prior to that as well. And so we get this uh, rare opportunity, somebody who is just a Minnesota guy, and at the same time has really devoted his life to this practice that is quite transforming. And uh, we just, many of us in this room, just finished an eight-day retreat to Bhajan Chandako up north. It would be a wonderful opportunity to hear these teachings and just to be together in the practice. So I look forward to Bhajan Chandako's talk tonight. And if you'd like to find out more about um, Ajahn Chandiko and the monastery that he leads, it's Abedov in New Zealand. There's, uh, I think Dennis put out the website there on the table. You can copy it down if you want. A lot of uh, talks and interesting Buddhist resources at that website and links to other places. Um, so it's worth checking out. And maybe Ajahn Chandiko at the end of the talk will uh, speak a little bit about um, his plans Minnesota plans. <laughs> Thank you again, Ajahn Chandra, for coming. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, well, I always feel honored to come here to Common Ground because I really have a lot of respect for what Mark and everyone of this whole community has put together. And I can see how it's been developing over the years. And it's, it is very inspiring and encouraging. Um, when I was when I was here in Minneapolis and interested in Buddhism, you, know, you had to look pretty hard to, to find something. It was really one place at that time. And now it's just so encouraging to see it uh, growing, sprouting, and thriving in uh, many, many different neighborhoods. Mohatasa Bhagavato Sambutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Buddham Damang Sanghangamasami So there is peace in the world. 
and generally when there is peace in the world we consider it good but peace in the world is subject to arising and passing away as we know very well so then there's peace in the world and then there's unshakable peace now the peace which is unshakable doesn't arise and doesn't pass away when the Buddha realized for the first time the truth of the Dhamma it was like he discovered an ancient city or it was as if he had plugged into something which was there all the time an unshakable peace and whether Buddhas arise or not arise whether we're in a bright era or a dark era the Dhamma remains the same the Dhamma remains unshakable peaceful so tuning into the Dhamma is what it's all about what we're aiming for what we're encouraging what we're investigating but what is the Dhamma we take refuge in the Dhamma is one of the three refuges Dhammang Saranangachami but but what actually is the Dhamma the words in the suttas what we hear in Dhamma talks what we read in books in the books stores and the Buddhist section and Dhamma is really nature. And the laws according to nature and living in harmony with the laws that are in accordance with nature and bringing that into our lives. In the forest tradition we try to take nature as our primary teacher. above and beyond everything else it really comes down to studying nature you go out you sit underneath a tree you sit in the forest you go out on the mountains go into the cave you sit by a stream just watch the stream how does water flow how does water work which is stronger the rocks or the water we're mostly water if we can understand water then we kind of get a handle on how we work too we understand how trees grow being out in the forest you get healthy thriving beautiful trees but you also get dead trees and decaying trees and new trees sprouting out and when a storm comes through which trees survive and which trees don't survive getting close to the elements and this is what the Buddhist teachings are meant to be based on when the Buddha talked about the Dhamma and taught the Dhamma and verbalized it then he did the best he could he probably did the best any human being could in, in creating words teachings and a way of life which pointed to nature pointed to the ultimate truths of nature the unshakable peace behind nature but of course the words themselves are not the end so we take refuge in the Dhamma and it's part of what we 
can reflect on. What is it that we're actually taking refuge in? What does it mean to take refuge in the Dhamma? Well, in the forest tradition, we try to stay close to the elements of nature. Recently, we had a retreat up in northern Minnesota, and we were really close to the elements, as anyone who's been on the retreat can attest. Uh, we had, we didn't just have retreatants, we had Dhamma warriors. <laughs> and they were close to the earth element, living in tents on the ground. And they were close to the water element, bathing in lake water and feeling the rain. And they were close to the wind element a lot. <laughs> as we got some big strong winds coming through and they were definitely close to the fire element and we had one of the most intense electrical storms that most of us have seen in a long, long time. And there's a aliveness or a primacy about being close to the elements. It's a kind of a learning that takes place which doesn't necessarily have to engage the intellect so directly. You kind of feel it. You sit by a big tree, or sit by the lake, and just, what does it feel like in your gut? So there's a certain amount of learning that takes place, just being immersed in nature. Of course, nature and the laws of nature are happening even in the midst of downtown Minneapolis. But somehow, with all the concrete and steel girders, um, it's like man's ego, the human ego, tends to be predominant or be more obvious. Or if you're just out in the wilds, then, then it's just our own ego, <laughs> which is predominant and it stands out. And, and then it becomes really clear what the obstacles are between unshakable peace and the current present circumstances. So what is the Dhamma? These days in Buddhism we are present in an age which is it's really unprecedented in the history of Buddhism. 2,500 years. There's never been a time where we have access to all the different traditions simultaneously. So this is a great opportunity. It's also a great opportunity for confusion. If you have just one cereal to choose from, it's very easy to be happy with one box of cereal. But if you have 50, then you just start to fall into choice paralysis. You know, follow your childhood love of raisin bran or just follow your Chilese and go for Fruit Loops or just try to be natural and go for the granola. 
But if you just have raisin bran, then it's easy. And for most of the history of Buddhism, um, most of the, the countries or societies where it has thrived has essentially just had one main type of Buddhism. And that's always been good enough. That's always been adequate to produce very wise people. You just take one box of cereal and throw yourself into it and get enough nutrition. But how do we judge what is the Dhamma and what isn't the Dhamma? What is the Dharma? However you want to spell it. So in many ways, the Buddha didn't just give direct answers. He would give guidelines. Even when he was asked, do enlightened individuals occur, are they to be found in other traditions besides the teachings of the Buddha? And he didn't just say yes or no or give a straight answer. He said, in any tradition that you find the Eightfold Path, you will find people on the stages of enlightenment. There was another time where the Buddha's mother, really stepmother, came to him. Now the Buddha was born in the forest, and shortly after that his mother passed away, approximately a week after he was born, which was really heartbreaking to Suddhodana, the Buddha's father. But the Buddha's aunt was also um, there in the palace, part of the, uh, the royal scene. And so she then took over the role, raising the young Siddhartha. Her name was Mahapachapati Gotama. And for all intents of person, Purposes, she was actually the, the Buddha's mother, except uh, biologically. She weaned him, she raised him. And a few years after the Buddha's enlightenment, uh, the Buddha's father, Suddhodana, passed away. Now, there is a happy ending to that, even though he had great initial doubts about the Buddha's path. He did apparently die, a fully enlightened being. And shortly after that, Mahapajapati, she decided that she would also like to lead the life of a wandering holy person. So she asked the Buddha for going forth. And she was really willing to go for it. In order to, to show her dedication to that, she walked a uh, huge distance with a great following of other women and arrived swollen feet, sore, worn out, covered with dust to where the Buddha was staying and, and uh, please asked for the going forth, the ordination, the inclusion into the ordained monastic Sangha. 
So the Buddha's stepmother then was the very first nun. It was a family business. <laughs> and there was a time later on in her period of being a nun where she came to the Buddha and she said, I would like to go into seclusion to practice more intensively. I'd like to go into a place which is withdrawn from the larger monastic sangha, a place where I can be alone, a place where I can practice diligently. Can you please, blessed one, give me a short teaching on, on what is the Dhamma? So the Buddha addressed his stepmother and he said, Now there are certain qualities which lead to the Dhamma and there are certain qualities which you can be assured of are leading away from the Dhamma. And then he gave eight pairs of guidelines. And these eight pairs of guidelines are still valid today. So the first pair are passion and dispassion. He said, those things which are leading to passion, you can be assured that they are not the Dhamma. And those things which are leading to dispassion, you can be sure that they are the Dhamma. And so what do we mean by passion and dispassion? The Pali is Raga, we Raga. So by passion, we're referring to not passion in the positive sense of the word, so not in the sense of having enthusiasm for something, but in the sense of an unquenchable thirst, seeking through the senses in a way which can never lead to satisfaction, and just an endless quest to find beauty through sight, beautiful sounds, wonderful smells, delicious tastes, comfort. <coughs> When passion manifests itself through the senses, then it can lead into a situation which is inherently unsatisfactory, unquenchable desire. So dispassion, or viraga, is the, the cessation of those hungers and thirsts dispassion. It's one of the most important steps on the path to enlightenment. And one of the classic series of causes and conditions, happiness leads to samadhi, deep peace, and, and samadhi then leads to seeing things as they truly are. And seeing things as they truly are leads to the, the fading away and cessation of passion. which leads to a full enlightenment. So true dispassion is, is a very profound thing. And the Buddha said, anything which is leading in the direction of true dispassion, you can be assured that this is the Dhamma. 
Now the second pair was attachment and detachment or letting go. So attachment is a word we hear a lot about in Buddhist circles. And, um, generally attachment is um, considered to be the cause of dukkha. Really it's, it's craving and clinging which together we could call attachment, holding on, possessiveness, identification with things, holding things very tightly, holding things so tightly to the point where we tend to squeeze the life out of them. And that's what uh, real possessiveness is and how possessiveness can, can uh, kill even the most joyful and wonderful things in our life just through excessive clinging. So those things which are leading towards this attachment, this bondage, is another way of translating it, bondage. You can be assured that those things are leading away from the Dhamma. And those things which are leading to freedom or letting go, to detachment in a positive sense, but sense of being freed from bondage, being liberated. And that's leading to the Dhamma. The third pair is accumulation. That which is leading to accumulation, getting more and more and more and You know, I mean, this is what America is all about. So the opposite of that is getting rid of things. That's almost un-American. It's not good for the economy. <laughs> but how much do we need, really, this idea of accumulation? And it's not just accumulation or amassing of material things and money and possessions and cars and houses and clothes and it's it's all the things we mentally accumulate our personalities our, our identifications our statuses our you know everything that we build up and hold on to is being me and mine and put together this whole amassing, amassing of everything, physical, mental, emotional. So the more we amass and accumulate and all of that, the Buddha said, this is actually leading away from the Dhamma. And what is it that's leading towards the Dhamma? It's this sense of diminution, actually letting things go, uh, getting rid of things setting things down. So it's not just material things sometimes, but it's really how we relate to things because you can't just get rid of everything. You know, we need certain things to survive and it's not a matter of just getting rid of external things and thinking that we're free of attachment. But it's really how we relate to things even when we keep them in our lives. People say, ah, John, I'm attached to my children. So you're saying I should get rid of my children. He said, yes, that's right. No, but 
You don't <laughs> kick your children out of your house. But the whole relationship can be based more on, say, freedom, dispassion, um, liberation, lack of bondage, lack of holding and clinging, lack of attachment, not amassing, letting go. So it's interesting to see how these things relate to how we live, how we're used to living in a particular society. The Dhamma is not designed to go with the mainstream. If it was, then hey, getting enlightened would be easy. But the Dhamma always goes against the mainstream of the world. The next pair is aggrandizement, like self-aggrandizement, and modesty, or humility, like true humility. So anything that's leading to a gigantic ego, or anything that's just leading to reinforcing our sense of self, or aggrandizing it, solidifying it, making it entrenched in the world, then that's going to be leading away from the Dhamma. And anything which is leading towards just being very modest and humble. By humble, we don't mean um, being very hard on oneself or giving oneself a hard time or, or thinking that we're worthless. It's not the opposite of, of conceit. In, in Pali, the word conceit doesn't just mean what we normally think of as conceited, like, I'm so great. But conceit refers to also not just I am better than you, but also, I am worse than you. You are worse than me. You are better than me. Or, we are the same. Any idea of self compared with others is considered conceit. Because it's based on a sense of self, identifying with the sense of self. And the more we put energy into that, the more solid it becomes, then the more it's actually leading us away from the dumb. So true humility is not, oh, I'm no good, you know, there's nothing special about me. True humility is just getting the self out of the way. The next pair is discontent and contentment. So we tend to think of contentment as hopefully the end of the path. And why are we doing all this? Well, whatever we're doing, hopefully it's leading to contentment. Even if it's material accumulation or amassing wealth or self-aggrandizement, hopefully you know, the idea is that it's leading to contentment. Although after a while we tend to learn that it doesn't work very well. 
But even on the Buddhist path, we can think that, oh, well, contentment is the end of the path, but the process to get there is going to be a real hard slog. It's going to be really painful, and the, you know, the more pain it is, probably the more holy I am. And, you know, so I'll be really hard on myself. And I won't be content until I'm fully enlightened. I vow not to be content. But uh, if you find that um, you want to take meditation deeper, one of the greatest tools, really deep, the only way to take meditation deeper and deeper and deeper is to be totally content with exactly how it is right now, not trying to force it, change it, strive for something different, but be totally content with the way it is right now, just focusing in on that contentment, absolutely perfectly content, and then you'd be surprised it actually goes deeper. So contentment is not something that is just the result in the end of the path, but it's a quality that we can develop moment by moment. And that's good to investigate. Now, what is content and what is discontent? Because, you know, really, contentment means that we have the ability to be absolutely perfectly happy right here and right now. And if we're not absolutely perfectly happy right here and right now, then we're experiencing discontent. And, and what is it? You know, what is it? You know, you uh, desire, uh, trying to get rid of something, um, uncomfortable feelings, emotions, whatever. It all kind of fits into the content, even if even if we're just bored. You know, if we were perfectly content, even if we're just sitting doing nothing for hours on end, uh, which we do a lot of that then we'd be perfectly content. There would be no boredom arising whatsoever. But if you've been on retreats, and especially in the beginning, for the first 20 years maybe, then it, yeah, sometimes boredom arises. Another period of saying, oh gosh, okay, this is so boring. But what actually is it? that's boring. It's just a very subtle discontent with the way things are right here in the present moment. And with a slight switch of perception or attitude, it's like discontent or boredom can just be turned into, hey, actually everything's just fine the way it is right now. So anything which is leading to discontent is considered leading away from the Dhamma. Anything which is leading to contentment is considered the Dhamma. The next pair is entanglement in society and seclusion. Mm. Now, Disengaging from entanglement in society doesn't mean that we all have to run away to a monastery. But if you do, that's fine. I can recommend some good places. However, it's really the attitude which is most important. We can be engaged in many different relationships within our lives and still be unentangled have a feeling of, of not being entangled in it all. Or we might have just one relationship and feel totally entangled. Or we may 
know, we may not have many relationships with other people at all, but we just have relationships with our own mind, and then we're totally entangled in that. So anything which is leading to entanglement is going to be leading away from the Dhamma. One of the similes that the Buddha would use talking about his generation, to say nothing about our generation, you know, I don't know what he'd say about our generation, but even his generation, he'd say, you know, he would be thinking, the Dhamma is such a refined thing. Like after he was enlightened, he, he hesitated. Is there going to be anyone who's going to understand this? Such a refined thing. This generation is like a tangled ball of string. It's just like a massive string that's all tangled and knotted. And, and um, that was a simile for our, our minds. <laughs> and Dhamma practice is like untangling it all. And you wonder, well, why does it take so much time to practice the Dhamma? You said, well, it's kind of like you've got this big mass of thread that's all knotted and you just have to very carefully, mindfully, persistently, you know, with wisdom and you have to have common sense, you can't see, okay, well this is hooked around this loop and this is tied here and this needs to be unknotted and okay, we get a bit of free thread here, we'll keep that nice and straight and then we're going to work on this section. And So that's a bit like Dhamma practice, disentanglement, disentangling our minds. And you can't just go into a big tangle of thread and, and just try to force it straight, because then it just rips and breaks. So it takes delicate persistence, it takes observation, takes intelligence. You gotta see, okay, well this is all this is where it's tangled. See, and then use your intelligence to undo it. So that which is leading to disentanglement is the Dhamma. Now another way of phrasing that is seclusion. And this is a quality that the Buddha encouraged a lot, seclusion. Now very few of us really have the opportunity to go off into real seclusion very often. But even if we have the opportunity to go on retreat periodically, it's worth doing. Even if we don't have the opportunity to go off on retreat, then we can still manifest a certain amount of seclusion in our lives. And that's, I think, very important for maintaining a certain amount of balance so we don't get burned out. If you have a full-on family situation going, you've got a job, career, responsibilities, all the stuff going on. It's not selfish to take an hour of the day and just say to everyone, this is my time just to be quiet. And if I can have this time every day 
then I'm going to be so much more effective and joyful and in good mood and kind and patient with everyone else. So it's not selfish to, to take that time. So many people you know, are afraid to take that time because they think they're being selfish. But it's not. And because there's so much in our lives now that's pulling us in the direction of complication, we really have to make a concerted effort to simplify and find that little bit of seclusion, even in the midst of a busy life, and just put a sign on the door and says, do not disturb, lock the door, just sit quietly, where you know you're not going to be disturbed, and everyone else knows that that's your quiet time. So things which are leading to seclusion are leading to the Dhamma. Now by seclusion, the Buddha talked about three types of seclusion. One was physical seclusion. We actually take our, take our bodies out of busy, complicated, noisy situations and put them in environments which are more solitary or remote or natural because our environment is a powerful conditioning factor. It will make a difference in how we feel, how we experience things. So that's one level of seclusion. Another level of seclusion, which is much more profound than that, is called citta viveka. The first is kaya viveka. Of bodily seclusion. The second is citta viveka. Citta refers to the mind or heart. And when the mind or heart is secluded, this is what the Buddha, what the Buddha meant by this was that meditation goes so deep that it just pulls away from the world. In the same way that we might pull our body out of the mainstream of the world. We, you know, the mind kind of pulls away from all of the thoughts and distractions and dis- proliferations of our mental world. It just becomes unified, still, bright, radiant in samadhi. So that's the meaning of citta viveka. And then even more profound than that is upadi viveka, which is seclusion from the root defilements or impurities in our heart. So even deep states of meditation will temporarily give us respite and and are very powerful, but they may not be able to immediately uproot all of our roots of greed, hatred, and illusion and all of their children. So the ultimate seclusion is is seclusion from the mental defilements. The next pair is laziness and energy or effort. So anything which is leading to laziness or indolence, the Buddha said, well, this is not going to lead to the Dhamma. And anything which is, not anything, but certain things, certain types of effort are going to be leading towards the Dhamma. So this is an interesting pair. 
to look at as well. The Buddha is clearly saying in many, many of his discourses that the Dhamma is not something which doesn't just happen. It takes a concerted effort. It takes uh, a quality of energy. We have to give a lot putting into the Dhamma practice for it to happen because we're, it's like we're going upstream, going up a mountain stream in a kayak. It takes effort. One of the ways that the Buddha talked about his teaching, he didn't call it Buddhism. He had many other words for it. Sometimes he called it uh, Dhammapinya, which means uh, the teaching and the discipline. Another term that he used was the Viryavada, which means the path of effort. It's not a path of grace. It's not a path of... Um, supplication to a deity. It's a path of personally putting forth effort. A relationship with the law of karma so that we're putting forth effort moment by moment. But by effort it wasn't just the idea of um, working hard and hard. Because a lot of people work very hard and aren't lazy at all but it's still not leading in the direction of the Dhamma. So right effort on the Noble Eightfold Path is very specific. And right effort, the Buddha didn't say, put forth lots of effort. Correct. Meditate really hard. He said, right effort is the when negative or unwholesome states of mind arise, then we actually make the effort to do something about that. We're mindful of it, but then we make the effort to, to change it. And we make the effort to keep unwholesome states of mind at bay. And we make the effort to bring up wholesome states of mind. So that it's not just a hit or miss kind of a process, but we can actually make the effort to bring up contentment. We can make the effort to bring up loving kindness. We can make the effort to bring up a sense of being peaceful and, and uh, bring up the causes that can lead to insight. And then we make the effort to sustain that. Because once it arises, then if we don't continually put forth effort into it, it passes away. You know, get a great meditation experience and then somehow the clear seeing from that, if we don't keep putting effort into it, it just passes away and it's gone. So that's what right effort is. So it doesn't have anything to do with specifically sitting in a cross-legged posture or doing any particular type of technique, but in every activity throughout the day, from the time we get up until the time we go to bed at night, we're able to practice meditation by practicing right effort, by watching our mental landscape, understanding okay, what are we experiencing right now in our bodies and minds, especially in our minds, and um, wholesome mind states arise, then great, rejoice in that and make the effort to make them stronger, develop them, cultivate them to, uh, to make them so 
so strong in our lives that that just becomes the way that we live. The final pair is luxury and frugality. So those things which are leading towards luxury, wanting a lot, are going to be leading away from the Dhamma. Those things which are leading towards living a simple, frugal life are going to be leading towards the Dhamma. It's a very practical pair. For years I've been encouraging people to learn how to live more simply. And not just for their mental health, but also just to practice learning how to live simply because there may be a time in the future where we don't have any choice. We're going to have to learn how to live more simply. And if we have a gradual practice of learning how to live more simply, frugally, then it's not going to be a shock. Even before I was a monk, I remember traveling in Europe, especially traveling in Asia, and then realizing while I'm traveling that you know, I don't need very much. You start off with this huge big backpack full of everything that you're sure you're going to need, and then you start just chucking it out and saying, I don't want to carry this, I want to carry this, you know, one pair of pants, one shirt, <laughs> and one toothbrush, and basically anything else you can find along the way. And I'd come back from traveling, come back with the idea that I'd always been not very materialistic anyway, but then opened up my closet and there would just be rows and rows and rows of shirts and pants and pairs of shoes and it just seemed so excessive. <laughs> it was excessive, but it was normal. So that's something to reflect on. And like all these guidelines, the Buddha doesn't say, this is what it means to live simply and frugally, and this is what it means to live luxuriously, because that very much depends on the society we live on. It depends on our particular circumstances. Uh, what's frugal for a, a monk is not going to be um, frugal, or it's going to be you know, just um, impractical for a lot of other people in mainstream society, and what's frugal for someone with a family and a home and a house and all of that, it would be considered very luxurious for a monk or not. So these are guidelines for our reflection. But it just kind of puts them out there, not as something to believe in blindly and to recite and, and as an end in itself. But he gives us these guidelines to say, Use your wisdom. Develop your wisdom. Use your intelligence. Use your common sense. Now figure out what it is in your life that is amassing and accumulating and luxurious or effort that's leading away from the Dhamma. And what are the things which are leading towards the Dhamma? And those things which are leading away from the Dhamma, then once we start to figure that out, life starts to change. Or we can 
We have the choice. And those things which are leading towards the Dhamma, then we can be confident that, yeah, this really is a good way to live. Even if we don't get a lot of support from it, from friends or family or mainstream society, if you don't see a whole lot of advertisement that says, live simply, you have everything you need to be perfectly content right now. Don't buy anything more. <laughs> but every situation is different. So, you know, these are things which we all have to figure out on our own. But if we are following guidelines like, like this, then the Buddha says that this is what will lead towards the Dhamma. This is what will lead towards true happiness, towards not just not just peace that arises and passes away and arises and passes away, but leads towards unshakable peace, the unshakable peace of the Dhamma. So I offer these words for your contemplation. One has any questions about anything, especially about the Dhamma? <laughs> Please feel free to ask any questions that you like. I haven't felt that in a long time. 
and of course there was a moment of like total attachment to it. But I, I had to kind of different things. Like, wow, that, that looks nice. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah, and then it passes away, and then beware of craving to get it back. Yeah, but pay attention to what led up to it. It's the ninth pair. There was lack of caffeine and caffeine. (laughs) (laughs) A total sense of bliss and oneness. Feel it, my veins. Very deeply. Yeah, well, that's, that is certainly something which can bring up a lot of joy, just having a simple, positive interaction with another human being or with other people. With this whole relationship or this issue of entanglement and non-entanglement, what that means, it's, it's related quite directly with what we mean by metta loving-kindness and the difference between loving with attachment and loving without attachment. Loving with attachment tends to, you know, I mean it has definite um, bliss factors with it, but it also has the seed within it which kind of leads to its own destruction if we cling too tightly. Loving without attachment is not based on um, a deal. It's not, it's not deal-making. It's not like, well, I'll be kind to you if you're kind to me back. Or I'll love you if you tell me that um, I'm wonderful or you respect me or you give me security or companionship or whatever. But just even if you don't give me anything positive back, I'm just going to be kind and caring and loving and, and then really try to do that unconditionally which is you know a very high standard but we can gradually gradually work towards that in our lives and that's a way that we can live in a, a way that feels unburdened and unentangled and at the same time be in the midst of relationships with other people all sorts of different types of relationships and levels of relationships. And that gives rise to a lot of happiness. So it really comes down to getting the self out of the way, self-interest, selfishness out of the way. I just wanted to comment on spoke some about when you put yourself in situations where you just, you know, are out there without a lot of the distractions, like on retreat and stuff. Uh, I found for myself 
when I came back from retreat that I felt this like need to just let people in my life know how much they mean to me in different ways and throughout the different people. And I just had no idea what was going on. It was like I needed to let these people know how much they mean to me. And some some of them were my family members. Uh, and what I found was this respect for what I was doing from my mom, basically, which was <laughs> the last thing I ever thought would ever happen. And for the first time in my life, she saw that what I was doing was a good thing. And I felt like this sense of gratitude for the practice I had done. Not because I was doing it to get something, but I felt that, you know, sense of peace through that, which was really neat. So it's not really a question. I just wanted to share that. Sadhu. <laughs> <laughs> Sadhu is the Buddhist way of saying right on. <laughs> For those of you who are thinking about doing a retreat in the future, just be aware that sometimes it has the side effect of hair loss. <laughs> you might have known... He didn't look like that before he started them. You know, he started them yeah. yeah, he had a good barber. No blood was drawn. <laughs> it was voluntary. We no one held him down. <laughs> That's great to hear. Yeah, I'm really happy to hear. You know, you were talking about uh, right effort and, you know, the opposite being laziness and so on. Uh, so something about this isn't uh, a path of grace or something like that. So I know these words can be used in different ways, but it, it seems like the way I understand that word, it's like the more that we release and simplify and, you know, learn to live in harmony with nature, if there is a kind of a quality of grace that seems to become present in my experience. I'm, I'm just, I don't think you were saying otherwise, but I'm just, I don't know. Right. I think you're right. It's, people use these terms in very different ways. I guess the way I was using the term was more in a theistic, like dualistic theistic way of um, essentially um, believing in taking refuge in an external deity and that external deity gives you um, eternal salvation through that. So the Buddha was saying that that's that's not how his teachings were. Against the universal experience of 
of art and great art. Of what? Great art. Great art. Great art, you know, whether it's dance or music or literature, um, painting. All of them seem to have, maybe this is a Western experience, a lot of tension. Whether it's a great Michelangelo piece of art or great piece of literature like Shakespeare or one of Flannel's dance. There's a lot of tension there. Tension? Wind's dancing? So when you look at maybe, so you have all these social arts That's what makes great art. You know, relationship, relaxation, tension, and release. So I look at all the examples in my head because culture is really important to me. So I'm trying to map these eight duality, what you're talking about, against great art, human experience, and these Western society, what great art is. Well, art, or great art, even bad art, is just such a huge category. But as a general thing, you can take these these guidelines, these standards, and look at art in, in those with those eight standards. For example, you know, is this leading towards um, entanglement? <laughs> or is it leading toward accumulation of art? <laughs> I think where these standards would really come into play is in the creation of art, like for the artist herself or himself, and our relationship with art, or just the art of life, now we relate with life. But the way we relate to it is it leading towards these say, wholesome qualities of letting go and coolness of dispassion and freedom. And that really, you can't make a, a statement either one way or the other. It really depends on how we relate to it. Even one work of art may bring up a sense of freedom and letting go for one person who watches it or looks at it or experiences it and then the next person might feel it might just bring up totally different stuff from within their mind that that is holding an attachment or angst or tension or whatever. So I guess really these standards are more about our relationship, how we are in relationship with the things in our life.
Depends what you mean by that. just in a relationship with you know, a partner, a man or a woman, but you're in a relationship with a whole community of, in my case, guys who you know, we never would have chosen on our own to live together. <laughs> you know, from different cultures and different personalities and, and in many ways very different. But you know, the thing which we have in common was the Dhamma or the, the willingness to use the Dhamma in a way that we can uh, be in harmony you know, in, in the social sense in relationship with each other and community life is a big part of our training being in solitude and meditating and off in nature that's very important and going back into community and being with other people and getting feedback from other people, <laughs> that's very important too. And so we, we're always in relationship. Even if, I mean, even hermits are in a relationship. They still you know, have to deal with people or animals or something. We're always in relationship with something. So it really comes down to how we're in relationship with things. Now, if you have... Um, very intimate relationships that can be much more intense or give rise to a lot more intensity of emotion. But basically, the same principles apply. Um, learning how to live harmoniously with other people's um, personalities and fluctuations and um, idiosyncrasies. Trying to Move toward, move away from 
just loving the people that we like and and not liking the people we we don't like, but uh, just moving towards a, a general appreciation of, say, if you're in a really kind of intimate partnership relationship, then if I move towards a spaciousness of appreciation that can encompass even the times when other people are in a bad mood or are not quite giving us what we want. So there's a lot of Dharma practice to be had in there, depending on you know, if we're approaching it from, from the viewpoint of you know, these helpful guidelines. And when we need to kind of go into it more or back off or whatever, that kind of depends on how much mindfulness we have. If we have very strong, spacious awareness and attentiveness to what's happening, we can be in the midst of very complicated situations. Maybe busy, noisy, a lot of things happening. Um, you know, just a lot of going on externally and internally. But if there's like spacious mindfulness around it, then it can all be seen as as Dhamma practice. We can obviously just things which arising passing away. You know, we don't have to get drawn into it in a, in a negative sense. You know, we're you not know, living it. At the same time, we're not a slave to it all. We don't get totally hoodwinked by everything. But if we don't have mindfulness that's strong enough, when things start to get too intense, it's like we just we lose it. We kind of lose perspective. You know, we don't get what we want. We're really upset. Emotions just can go all over the place, and, and if that starts to happen, then that may be a sign that okay, maybe we should back off a little bit. To the degree that you can kind of have a, a spaciousness around situations, then then that's a sign that you know, okay, relationship, the amount of entanglement is sort of within our ability to handle. <laughs> okay, two questions. There was, hands went up simultaneously. I have to go with Anne first. By the way, Anne, we we all sent our meta loving kindness to you at the closing ceremony. So I hope you felt it. I felt it. Okay, good. Um, my question would be last because I next year about your future plans. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Do you want to go first then? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, well, my time in Minneapolis is actually uh, coming a bit to a close. I just arrived, <laughs> but it's coming to a close. Tomorrow I go down to Northfield, which is where I went to college, went to Carleton. And so when I come into this area, it's nice to be able to go down, uh, visit my old alma mater, and. Uh, see some of my religion professors, people that I used to hold up as, you know, they were, some of my 
religion professors are a bit like demigod status, and uh, and uh, now they consider me an honored guest. So, <laughs> 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 fun and so I'm a relig- I, I majored in religion, and, uh, so I was one who made good in his major. <laughs> and, and also it's really encouraging because now there's a Buddhist organization, Buddhist society right there on the main street of Northfield, which I never had that when I was a student. So tomorrow I'm going down to Northfield, spending the day down there teaching, giving talks. Then the next day I go to Rochester and Midday, I give a talk at Mayo Clinic. Then in the evening, I give a talk at Doug's Vipassana group. Is it Rochester Vipassana? Good guess. <laughs> okay. And then Friday, I'll come back here. I'll be staying here Friday, but um, be visiting some of my relatives who are still here in the Minneapolis area. Then Saturday morning, go back to San Jose to visit my mother a couple of days, and then back to New Zealand on the 28th. Mm-hmm. Huh? And so maybe the clarified question was, are you going to return to Minnesota and if there is some future Well, it depends. Do you think anyone would be interested in doing another one of those wilderness (laughs) 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 If there's enough interest to to rough it up in the northern lake country again next year, John is really happy. John was the owner of the cabin. He was an old family friend. He was very impressed with how Wonderful and kind and loving, all these Buddhists were. <laughs> totally new to him. He didn't know what to expect. And after a couple of days, he said, You know, there's just so much positive energy coming off of these people. <laughs> no negativity whatsoever, you know. So he says, Yeah, we can definitely come back and do it again there if there's enough interest. And if there's enough interest, then I'm happy to do it again. Sounds like yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Paul. Cookies? No, but we have juice. Juice for people if you'd like to stay. And I just like to remind people that um, at the end of the talk, after having received the, the teachings and Shared in Ajahn Chandra's practice, we can support him and support the center by even a donation. And when we have a guest teacher at the center, we share half of the donations with the guest teacher and save half for the support of the operation of the center. And uh, maybe this is in part what Anne was referring to. Uh, the donations that are left for Ajahn Chandra, the part that goes for him, um, being a monk, he's often taken care of or he doesn't get taken care of if no one is doing it. But he, so this money isn't going to go to his IRA or his 401k, but um, it's going to be dedicated to uh, building a meditation cabin. It's called a kuti up on John's land. 
and uh, if conditions arise, the little cabin will appear, and uh, Ajahn Chandrakar will have a place to practice when he's in Minnesota for however long that is, and uh, things turn out, we'll be able to practice with him up there when things work out. So see how it goes. If you're interested in that project, knowing more about it, you can send us an email and I'll forward it to Ajahn Chandako and you can uh, get involved in making that little meditation cabin happen. Um, also, we have our own building that we're working on and it's an exciting time. Lots is happening. And if you're not on David's uh, new building volunteer list, David uh, Alsestein, our project manager, has uh, his name and his email address on the far wall in the entranceway. You can just take that, send him an email, and you get a weekly reminder of what our schedule of when you can come and help put in the floor or do some painting or we'll be uh, doing some gardening around the building as soon as the new stucco is up in another week or so. So lots happening, making some progress. And if uh, uh, most likely we'll be serving Ajahn Chandrakar a meal on Saturday morning, probably around 10.30, thereabouts. If you're interested in that, you can let me know. Um, you can bring some food for the meal, or you can just come and join us for the meal. So just let me know if you'd like to, to join in. And if you have some time tonight to help put away the cushions and chairs, that would be great. And we're also looking for a program host for the monthly evening Dharma program where we have guest speakers, people to come early, set up, uh, make sure things get put away, answer questions. So if you've been around in the community for a while and you want to commit to coming, not necessarily every month, but several months out of the year at the monthly uh, evening program that we sponsor, uh, let me know. That would be great. Any other announcements for the community that people have? So maybe we can end uh, in this traditional way. You heard Ajahn Chanakar use the word sadhu. So it's traditional after somebody gives a talk that you've appreciated and feel like they've said things in a way that makes sense and can be useful in your life, and you say, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. So three times you say it together if you want to join me. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Right on. <laughs>